CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network. Welcome to The Hash, where you can get all the latest and greatest news in the crypto space. I'm Christy Harkin, filling in for Zach Seward. And here we've got my colleagues from Coindesk's Consensus Magazine side of the business, Ben Schiller and David Morris co-hosting today. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcast provider, thank you for joining. David, I'm going to send it to you to talk about our first story. Yesterday, we talked about how crypto-friendly bank Silvergate was having all kinds of problems. So what's going on with them today? Yeah, it doesn't look good. At the most recent reporting that I saw, Silvergate is approaching being under-collateralized for its balance sheet, which could lead to intervention by the FDIC. Some people expect it as soon as tonight. And that is because, as we've seen over the last few days and the past couple of weeks, they've had a a lot of big withdrawals from major customers taking their business elsewhere. The story is very complex, but essentially Silvergate is going down with a lot of the rest of the crypto industry. And as a result, um, we're now seeing some big market sell-offs as well. It's a little unclear to me why exactly the market is dumping on the news of this one bank. It might be more about headlines than actual substance. But it certainly is a signal that crypto winter continues and people who are trying to base businesses on on the crypto sector are having a hard time. Silvergate uh, for the crypto industry is a systemically important uh, institution. You know, crypto companies have struggled to find banking services and they were one of the few institutions, especially in the early days, to step in and provide that on-ramp, off-ramp for crypto. So um, news of its uh, demise or its troubles is troubling for the industry at large, especially in the context of more traditional institutions also being under pressure from the Feds recently to steer clear of cryptos. This is another kind of uh, sign of banking troubles for the industry. A lot of it will eventually shake out once everything gets settles down a bit with, with Silverbank. They've got an extra, they're asking for a two-week extension on getting their books in order and filing their, their reports. It might all, you know, work out a little bit better for them in the end once we actually get to see what their status is and what's going on with them and once people start to move their move their funds somewhere else and hopefully not just be selling it off continuously 
But I think that is also kind of the, the point that I'm making is that we are seeing big players successfully transition their businesses to other banking partners. So we had Paxos and I think Coinbase uh, and, and a few others who have already just set up relationships elsewhere. So this, this larger narrative of what people have called choke point 2.0, this idea that there is a federal level effort to stop banks from interacting with crypto companies at all, that, that might or might not turn out to actually be accurate because we are seeing people make, make those changes to different partners. It's also important to keep in mind that as far as I can tell, and I haven't dug deeply into this, but it, there's a really important distinction between what's happening at Silvergate and what happened at like FTX. Silvergate does seem to be experiencing a liquidity crunch rather than any kind of solvency issues. They have assets backing up all of their deposits, and they are just, you know, we're in a down market for a lot of things right now. So for example, if they put some of that money into equities, they might be having, you know, liquidity issues that are, that are short-term while still being solvent long-term. I don't, I don't know that for a fact, but that seems to be the case. So that is an important distinction to make as well. And one of the things that they did bring up also in one of yesterday's articles was that there are short sellers involved in this. So you're dealing with sort of, I don't want to say attack, but you're, you're looking at situations where it's more than just, as you say, it's a, it's a liquidity issue as opposed to something systemically wrong with the bank itself. Yeah, and it will be a problem in the short term if this leads to bigger hurdles for people looking to get banking. Obviously, a lot of the people transitioning out of Silvergate are kind of blue chip crypto companies who don't have the same reputational risk as, as smaller players or upstarts might. So this could definitely be a headwind. But you know, my personal take is I think that it's, it's being overplayed in terms of the macro risk. I don't think this merits a 5% drawdown in Bitcoin, for example. So we, uh, we could have an opportunity here for people who are willing to accept some of that risk from people getting out. Ben? I guess I have a darker interpretation of this. I mean, I think sentiment is reality here. And, uh, you know, this is a bank that's under pressure. It's not hugely capitalized compared to uh, major institutions. So I think it is uh, problematic for Silvergate and, and for the industry. And I just want to point out that uh, SPF famously said that Silvergate, uh, you know, there was a before Silvergate and after Silvergate impact on mm. crypto markets. And I think if there's an after Silvergate impact, that could also be seriously impactful for the industry. Fair enough. So our next story, has, uh, if we can move on from there, is, uh, well, we have a special guest joining us, Cam Thompson, on her latest report. Cam, tell us what's going on in the NFT world. Hi, Christy. Thanks for having me. So in the NFT world, some interesting news about February trading volumes. So Dapp Radar, which is a Web3 data platform, released their February report, and they found that in February, there was 2 billion in trading volume for NFTs. And these numbers are similar to where they were at pre-Luna crash in May 2022, which for a lot of people mm -hmm. is considered the start of crypto winter. And there are a couple main catalysts for this, including the popularity of the Blur NFT marketplace, as well as the empire of Yuga Labs. So we can get into some of those statistics a little bit deeper. Yeah, tell us what tell us about Blur a little bit first. What what is it about Blur that's making such an impact? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Blur has definitely risen in popularity because it's a zero fee marketplace that's targeted towards pro NFT traders. So these are traders that are going to be making very large transactions with a lot of Ethereum pouring into that. And you know, this whole marketplace war that's been going on between OpenSea and Blur, OpenSea is more targeted towards those retail traders. And some, there, there's something in the report to highlight 
in, you know, since, since January, sales have decreased 32% of, you know, individual NFT sales, but trading volume has increased 120%. So with this blur marketplace being so popular and a lot of people going to make these larger trades, that's one of the reasons why trading volume has really been pumping. And it's something that we're, we'll probably continue to see in the next several months. You picked up in your story about this that uh, based upon DAP radar industry volumes. Are there any other takeaways from that report that you can talk about? Yeah, absolutely. It's not just Blur that has had a significant impact on the NFT trading volumes. Um, it's also Yuga Labs and the Yuga Labs empire. Just a reminder, Yuga Labs, are, they're the creators of Bored Apes, Mutant Apes. They also own CryptoPunks and they have a huge market share over the NFT space. Actually, one of the statistics from February was that Yuga Labs was responsible for essentially 30% of all trading volume on Ethereum-based NFTs. So this company essentially owns all of them. And that includes all of these NFTs that are a part of this Dookie Dash game, which has gained popularity, you know, people buying a sewer pass. Just earlier this week, the winning player of Dookie Dash sold their key, which they received for having the highest score, for 1.6 million. And there's so much hype that's going into this game. This company has amassed so much popularity and a lot of people just wanting to ape into that community. And that's something that a lot of people have talked about is that, you know, a lot of people who are trading Yuga Labs NFTs don't necessarily look for rarity. They just look to be a part of this community. So that's another reason why this trading volume has been so large. Cam, I had a question about Blur. You said it's a no-fee marketplace. Was Blur also entangled in some of the debate about royalties in recent weeks? Yes, absolutely. So that's been a conversation that's been ongoing since Blur's launch in October, when the royalty debate really started kicking off, when marketplaces were switching from, you know, enforcing creator royalties to moving to completely optional. You know, a lot of people were pointing towards Blur, questioning this model as to whether or not it was fair for creators to be able to have their NFT sold on marketplaces where they're not earning any royalties. And for a lot of NFT creators, this is the whole reason why they got into Web3 in the first place. So a lot of marketplaces followed, you know, OpenSea reinforced their rule that they were going to keep royalties. But then after Blur's native token launch, which was a couple weeks ago, and this was the first time that Blur's trading volume surpassed OpenSea's, OpenSea switched to zero fee. So essentially no required royalties on the platform. So it's very interesting mm. to see how the royalty conversation has been a huge part of the competition for market share within all of these different NFT marketplaces. One of the things that you touched on that I find fascinating about this story is the sort of gamification of the NFT space and being able to participate not just by buying something, but by winning something, by winning a, winning a key and playing a game and being part of that community, how the community itself is part of the incentive to be there. So where are you seeing that going forward for the NFT space? Well, I think it's really interesting how so many collections have just amassed such a strong community, so much love over not just the IP, you know, the actual creative asset behind the NFT, but the people who are a part of it. And Ape Holders, a very strong community, you know, they all came together to play this game. Even beyond that, just the whole entire Yuga Labs ecosystem has really fostered a lot of people, you know, really passionate about it. And something else I want to point out that I think is interesting is earlier this week, Yuga announced that they are doing ordinals. So they're releasing a generative art Bitcoin NFT collection. Yeah, super exciting. And this is their first non-Ethereum-based NFT. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how in that 
they are able to kind of, you know, cater towards this community or amass, you know, a different type of audience or the same, who knows? People, people love it. Crazy, crazy. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm looking forward to actually seeing how that works out. So yeah, great. Thanks so much, Cam. Cam Thompson, thanks for joining us on The Hash today. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain, and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. We're checking in on the latest news about the zero-knowledge EVM race, ZK EVMs. Yeah, it's a techie story out of the Ethereum Developer Conference in Denver happening this week, but I'm here to break it down for you. So Coindesk reporter Margot Nishkirk reports that Consensus, a top software firm working on the Ethereum blockchain, not to be confused with Consensus Coindesk's own fabulous conference happening in April, is rolling out a zero-knowledge Ethereum virtual machine, ZK EVM, public testnet on March 28th. So what does this mean? The zero-knowledge, or ZK, is a type of technology that uses cryptography to help increase the speed of transactions and reduce gas fees on blockchains that have gas. So multiple companies are rushing to bring this innovation to the Ethereum ecosystem. And this is one of the year's hottest blockchain trends. Yes, zero knowledge. So ZK rollups are a scaling solution for Ethereum that takes data off chain onto a layer two chain in a smart contract, wraps it up in a proof, and then shares a small piece of that proof data on the main network. A ZK EVM is the system that's able to execute those zero knowledge smart contracts and interpret the proof from a zero knowledge proof. So you need the ZK EVM to work the zero knowledge proofs. There are a bunch of companies and platforms that are racing to be the first to bring a ZK EVM to market, including Polygon, which will go live with its mainnet beta ZK EVM later this month. Scroll and Matter Labs also have announced they're coming out with ZK rollups, but they haven't set dates yet. So this testnet from Consensus is a positive development in the scaling of Ethereum, but like the others in the race, it's not live yet on mainnet and won't be until sometime near the end of the year. So, David, go ahead. Yeah, this is one of those stories where we just lose the entire audience, but let's go for it. It sounded like you were making a distinction between layer twos per se, which already exist, have their own tokens, Polygon, Optimism, well, debate Polygon. But uh, the ZK EVM being separate from that might be a little bit wonky to people. So currently, as they operate, when you have these roll-up based extensions or scaling solutions, whatever you want to call them, are they, is it that they're now handling execution on Ethereum proper and rolling it back up? But once they have the ZK EVM, it becomes more efficient. Would that be a fair characterization of what we're talking about here? Yeah, you need the a ZK EVM that's able to sort of coordinate with Ethereum. And that's what puts it back on the main. The, the ZK EVM is what is able to actually execute the, the smart contract, the zero knowledge smart contract in the first place. I guess my question so was, they, since they don't exist yet, what's doing it now? Right. How are they executing what now? They, oh, well, they don't exist yet on Ethereum. They can't work with Ethereum just yet. This is something that was originally supposed to happen way in the future. Mm -hmm. Nobody expected it to be happening this early. 
If you talk to somebody this time, maybe even last year, people will be like, oh yeah, yeah, ZK rollups are not going to happen for quite a while yet. But toward the end of last year, all of a sudden, all of these layer two platforms like Polygon, whatever, were, were like, oh no, we, we've actually got something that's going to work. We're rolling out. And it was big news in the mm-hmm. fall where all of these companies were like, no, we're going to have ZK rollups. We're going to have a ZK EVM that's going to be able to execute these ZK rollups a lot sooner than we originally thought. So consensus is now the latest one in the race to be like, nope, we've got something that's going to be a a testnet by the end of the month and then operational by the end of the year. Yeah, it's something that was not supposed, I mean, we were waiting for the merge to happen before any of these rollups and other scaling solutions could happen. Now we've had the merge, all of these things are sort of wide open and ready to go and starting, starting to actually, you know, get some traction. I'm just wondering, Christy, who do we think uh, is going to be using this technology? And do you think uh, it could be scaling in the sense of uh, bringing new users onto uh, Ethereum? Yeah, um, I'm not 100% sure exa- like who's going to be using it. Basically, developers, um, wallets, any, anything that involves, really anything that's being built on Ethereum is going to be able to use this. But what you have to think of with a, with a, a roll-up, with these sort of privacy solutions, is everything is, the data itself is being rolled up, wrapped up. And then a small piece of data, only a small piece of that data goes back onto the main chain. So that's where the scaling part of it comes into it. The zero knowledge part of it is you only need that little bit of knowledge in order to verify that nothing on that, it, nothing in that smart contract has actually changed or been altered. And you only need just that tiny little bit of knowledge in order to make that happen. So anything that is going to be data heavy is going to want these. Um, anything privacy oriented is going to want these. Those are the kinds of applications mm-hmm. for it. So think of it more like a, as a, a larger application process that others that will eventually get baked into what anybody building on Ethereum is going to be able to take advantage of. Tell me if I'm wrong, but on, on net over time, the more <laughs> layer twos there are, A, you get cheaper fees on the layer two, but then you also theoretically open up bandwidth on Ethereum itself. So, so the general fee level should go down in theory, right? In theory. I mean, it's kind of, if you think of it the same, I don't like to draw too many parallels because it's not a perfect comparison, but it's, it's well, it's layer two. So it's like you'd have with the Bitcoin Lightning Network. The more transactions you have off of the main chain, the more things that happen on the Lightning Network, the fewer transactions there are that have to be recorded uh, because it's just the finality that goes onto the main chain. So mm-hmm. less data has to be stored on the main network. And when you have uh, fewer transactions competing for block space, fees are going to go down. Make sense? So <laughs> I guess... Uh, now let's ben, explain how the ZK algorithm works. Oh, dear God. Yeah, let's not. <laughs> You're going to have to get Sam Kessler or Margo on here to go through all that with you. But let's get out while the getting's good and move on to, to Ben and see what's going on with crypto lending platforms Celsius, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this is a happy Friday sort of news, I guess. The bankrupt crypto lender Celsius Network is allowing withdrawals of some assets from certain uh, custody accounts, according to news that we reported this week. Celsius, of course, is a disgraced uh, lender. It was once worth about $20 billion. Uh, it ran into big trouble last summer in June um, with liquidity issues, but it did reopen some withdrawals uh, to some users back in February up to a limit of about $7,500. And now the, the latest news is that uh, more users will be able to access their assets to a higher amount. So that's, that's good news. But Celsius, of course, is still in trouble. 
Its uh, CEO and founder, Alex Machinsky, has been accused of defrauding its investors by uh, no lesser person than the New York uh, Attorney General, Letitia James. But this is good news for some users of Celsius who, who stake their money on, on that network uh, and who can now get some of that money back. So um, happy Friday to those, those people. Well, I mean, what, what specifics do we have about who is going to be able to get this access? Well, we don't know at the moment. Uh, this is still very much based upon a tweet that was sent out from the company. So um, we're still unclear exactly what the limits are, but we're told that they will be more generous than before. And part of the bankruptcy arrangement around the company is that up to 97% of the users will be able to get their money back according to that agreement. It shouldn't be too bad in the end. That's the recovery level that they're expecting eventually is, is for 97%. Uh, Obviously, with crypto, that's a little bit wonky, but, um, but that's, that's great to hear. My Gox creditors would love to get that kind of return back on, on their lost yeah. funds. Yeah. Well, I guess Mt. Gox uh, proves that it can take a long, long time to get your money back. I mean, that's uh, a 10-year story now. I guess the, the creditors in this case can expect to wait a little bit longer too. Yeah. 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 If you're lucky enough to be able to get anything right now, that's great. It definitely can take a long time. I've also been talking to people involved in the recovery process and various lawsuits around FTX. And they're also looking at Mt. Gox. And admittedly, Mt. Gox, to be clear, is a Japanese bankruptcy liquidation. So that's a, a different regime. And so that might be, at least I've seen some claims that that's a particularly slow process. But in the US too, it can take a long time. So in, in all of these cases, you know, FTX is also looking at higher recovery rates than you might imagine. But the time that it takes to get that is a huge cost to people. And, uh, and, and worth remembering, right? In finance, we have this term opportunity cost. You might still get your money back, but you've still lost the opportunity to do other things with it in the meantime. Um, right. So, you know, even if you're seeing these 97% recovery rates, it's still, it's still a real bad time for people who are caught in that kind of trap and certainly does not make it any less of a fraud in the first place. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It doesn't, uh, I don't know that this will go very far in redeeming Celsius and Alz Mashinsky in the long run. It just makes the sting a little less uh, pronounced, perhaps. Anyway, we're going to end it there. That's it for the hash today. I'm Christy Harkin. That's Ben Schiller. That's David Morris. A big thank you to our guest, Coindesk reporter Cam Thompson. So hope you all have a great weekend. Thanks, guys. We'll see you later. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. <laughs>